So the Germanic tribes of um, the Roman world did not bow the knee to Rome. But as you can see that North Africa down into Egypt, the Middle East, the Mesopotamian uh, area as far up as Armenia, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, over all to Dacia, Dalmatia, Thrace, Macedonia, Italy, Spain, Gaul, and Britain did bow the knee to Rome. So this was very extensive. How incredible a time in human history for Jesus to be born because the message of Christ was able to go into all the world at that time. Okay, so we looked at the Roman Empire. This is uh, King Herod made the second temple in Jerusalem splendid, but then uh, when they had the uh, persecution, they did begin to scatter. So under the Roman Empire, Jesus was born during the reign of Caesar Augustus. He died in Jerusalem. His followers met in the Jewish temple courts of the Jerusalem and then in homes. And then when the persecution broke out, they fled Jerusalem and scattered throughout the Roman Empire. So you can see how far flung the word of Jesus became. We looked at um, the early Christians uh, worshiping in homes, and this meant Jewish, Roman, slaves, free men, uh, men and women worshiped together in Roman homes. This is a picture of our son. <laughs> Uh, in the uh, in a home in Pompeii, and Pompeii is one of the greatest places to actually see uh, what Roman architecture looked like for the homes. You know, before that we didn't have any examples, but because Vesuvius erupted, the city of of um, Pompeii and what's the one on the other side, Herculaneum, were covered just covered. And so it wasn't until the early 19th century, like around 1811, that a shepherd was looking for a sheep and discovered that there was this crust that he was standing on was enveloping an entire city. So when you go to Pompeii, uh, you, you walk the streets, you can literally go in their homes and it feels a little rude because you can't knock on the door and say, can I come in? Because they didn't have a choice. <laughs> you know, they were decimated quickly. So it gives us a wonderful example of the way a Roman home is constructed. And once you've been there, you can, have, you can absolutely see the church worshiping together in a home. Uh, just short of going to Pompeii, you too can have this experience. Um, the J. Paul Getty Museum, the Vila part, is in Malibu, California, just down the road from Pepperdine. And um, they have taken a floor plan from Herculaneum and reconstructed it to scale so that you can actually walk around and enjoy uh, Roman architecture, Roman statues. It, it's a phenomenal experience. And even when we lived there, 
um, I would find that to renew myself, I would I would take the bus because you can't park unless you have a parking spot reserved months in advance. So I would take the bus and go up here and just, it was like walk, walking into a different time. And <clears throat> I've taken, you actually come up on that end <clears throat> and you walk these corridors and the the gardens um, and then I'm taking this from the second floor of the actual villa I'm looking down at it like this you can see a little peak of the ocean back there so this is the kind of thing that you would have experienced <clears throat> in the early church here's an example of a corridor um, with the, um, the gardens on your left. Um, now, were those homes? Yes, it was. Mm -hmm. separate little, kind of like apartments? Oh, no, no, it's one home. <laughs> yeah, so the wealthy, uh, the wealthy members of the church would probably have been the hosts and um, they would have broken bread together in what I should have added this, but we covered it last week, so um, I, can, I can get you a picture of the outline, um, the floor plan, but most of the meals would have been in the triclinium, which is a three-sided structure above ground so that you would recline on it. Your head would be slightly elevated to your feet and you would recline at table and the hole in the middle of the U is where the servants would have come to serve the, the meal. And we noted that when you understand the way they're laying, they're not sitting, they're laying, um, reclining, that the, the idea that uh, the woman could have come behind Jesus, washed his feet with her tears and with perfume, and dried them with her hair. It's very visual. You can see how that could have happened. Um, so this is one home, but the mm -hmm. household would have been huge. Yes. I don't know how many people, but like in my mind, I'm thinking something more recent history, like what we see in Downton Abbey. Uh, yes. And the whole household and yes. the, the servants below. And so this yes. would have been similar yes. in that you would have had that kind of, that many people running a whole household. Yes. A household was not just a nuclear family. Right. The household was uh, the paterfamilia, the head of the household, the father, um, the mother, the children, the slaves, and it could even extend to um, people that worked for him. If you know, if there was room. Um, very different societal model than what we have. Now, the flip to that is that there were op examples in the um, New Testament of people like Aquila and Priscilla where the church met in their home. Now, they were not wealthy. They were laborers. So, in Rome, they would have had apartment buildings called stoas and they were built much like we think of an apartment building except for the fact that they did not have air conditioning um, so the windows were open um, 
it would have been very noisy in the in the neighborhood. It kind of would have been a little bit like living in Italy. If you've ever visited Italy, in the summertime, everybody's windows are open, and you can hear everything. <laughs> it's an interesting experience. Um, okay, so. I wanted to show you one particular, this is one of my favorite things at the villa in Malibu. This is a young lady who is in the posture of prayer. And I just think it's so dear that she's, you know, this is a supplication on her part. Is this commissioned by Getty or was that an yes. older, mm -hmm. older than that? No, Getty, oh, oh. Okay, I'm going to go out on a limb. I, I think it was a real statue that he was able to procure, but I could be wrong. If, if he did, it would have been based on something. Most of the statues in, in the Getty are real that he acquired. Good question. Okay. So when, when Rome discovered that Christians weren't a sect of the Hellenized Jews, they lost their legal immunity. So Christians, the Jewish Christians and the Roman Christians alike, were maligned by the empire as politically subversive and were accused of depraved religious practices. When, when the Christians explained that they were drinking the blood in eating the flesh of Jesus, um, they, they heard, not symbolic, but real, and so they labeled the Christians cannibals. And so they were arrested, and, um, <clears throat> but it really got bad. Th this, this was periodic. It, it, it wasn't sustained until Nero happened. <laughs> Nero, uh, when Rome burned down to the ground, he was looking for a scapegoat and to deflect the responsibility from himself. And so <clears throat> he chose to put the responsibility on the Christians. They were gathered up, they were imprisoned, and then they were fed to lions, as we've all heard before. It was a really harsh time for the Christians, <clears throat> especially the Christians in Rome. I will say this, um, if you'd like to know more about what that would have felt like, <clears throat> Francine Rivers has, <coughs> excuse me, Francine Rivers has a book that I'm going to recommend to you called um, I'm going to see if I can get this bigger. It's called um, A Voice in the Wind, The Mark of the Lion. And she just does a magnificent job. I can't seem to get this bigger. Can you see it? Yeah. A Voice in the Wind. And she does a magnificent job. Of course, this is historical fiction. But she does such an amazing job of putting you in, in the setting and, and letting you know, oh, you've read it. <laughs> How are you here? I, when I started reading, I was just like, I stayed up till like three or four in the morning. I could not put it down. 
It's really well. She is. She is. So, um, yeah, I highly recommend this book because it will put you in the setting and help you understand some of the, um, the fear and how they overcame their fears. It's a beautifully laid out story. And while I've got this screen up, I'm going to tell you another story. This is not historical fiction. It's a work of scholarship, and so it's a little dense to read, but it is well worth your time. It's called The Bone Gatherers. And it's about the women of the 4th century. So I'm headed to the 4th century. Just stay with me. But um, I will tell you a little bit more about the bone gatherers when I get there. Okay? But Bone Gatherers by Nicola Denzi. D-E-N-Z-E-Y. Okay, so now let's go back. Yes, ma'am. Mm -hmm. Okay, um, the Jews under Greece, um, Grecian rule, like uh, when Alexander the Great uh, first captured the known world, then his borders were taken over and expanded by the Roman, but they were called Hellenized Jews, and they had they had some real challenges because of their circumcision especially because if you'll remember um, the the Greek men liked to wrestle um, unclothed and the fact that the Jewish people uh, were circumcised caused a real problem for them because uh, there was no way to hide their identity and so a lot of them went through reverse uh, circumcisions, um, very painful, and in order to fit into the Hellenized world. So um, par um, so really, they didn't. They didn't. Um, oof, I wasn't prepared for that question. Um, so when they're talking about Hellenized Jews, they're talking about the Greco-Roman and Jewish period of time. I don't know if that helps or not. Probably is muddied. I think I just muddied the waters. Can I get back to you on that? Yeah, no, that's okay. All right. Okay. Um, okay. So because of the... Uh, persecution, um, the idea that we are resurrected as a body became very important to them. Um, they were facing death at any moment that could be seized. And so the idea of death was very front and center. And outside the, I'm going to talk about Rome in particular, okay? There, there is a the quality of the dirt outside the city of Rome is very unusual because you can literally carve out a space and it won't cave in. It's, it's most unusual. So the catacombs were built and there are literally hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of miles of catacombs. And um, I think some of us have, have thought that this is where they escaped to, to uh, worship in secret. 
there is some evidence that some of the um, sacraments were taken because there would be a little chapel carved out in the catacombs, but primarily it remained in the homes primarily. But the catacombs did serve a purpose to bury the body, which was opposite of the Roman practice of being cremated and they had these jars in a mausoleum and families could own a mausoleum and all of their ancestors could be placed in one place. So to be buried in the body was a new, um, a new practice. And some of the earliest motifs of Christian art are found right here and it really goes to their theology of the time. Um, the later motifs in the churches were used to teach the people, um, mainly because by, by 440, basically, uh, Rome had just been overturned by the Huns and the Vandals and, not Huns, the Vandals and the Goths. Um, and the Franks, they just came in waves and tore down the city of, of Rome. So, this is one of the earliest symbols in the church. It's the Pax Romana. Um, could, could be Pax Romana, Peace of Christ, but in Christians, it was the Chi, which is the first letter in Christ, or Christos, and the, the Rho, which is this. And those are the first two Greek letters in Christos. So, Chi, Rho, Christos. So that was the first symbol. And the, 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 you'll see when you go to um, Roman Catholic churches that this is still a symbol that has maintained all these 2,000 years. This is one of my favorites because I think it really depicts the theology of the day. This is from the catacombs of Domitia, Rome, which is like, like if you're looking at Rome, it's up here. And uh, it's of Jesus as the Good Shepherd. Now, what we're gonna see once Christianity is legalized and Constantine takes this model of the church and flips it on its head is that from that point forward, Christ is going to be depicted as a king, okay? So this is very precious to me, that the early Christians truly understood him to be their shepherd, that he would lay down his life for his flock. <clears throat> Here is another Christ as uh, the good shepherd uh, from the catacombs of San Calisto in Rome. And so the fact that you've got two depictions in different catacombs does show you that there is this general theological understanding of Christ as the Good Shepherd. Another motif are the loaves and the fish um, based upon the, the miracles that Jesus did for the 5,000 and the 4,000. And this is also from the catacombs of San Calisto in Rome, and this is the very first appearance of a bearded Jesus 
in the catacombs. And this is circa 4th century. It's just before uh, Constantine actually legalizes Christianity. Well, Lana, do you think that's because they're reflecting whatever the norm was for their time? I would love to know. I, I, I don't think it's from the time. Okay. Because if you look at all the statues <laughs> of all the Roman Caesars, and if you look at even pictures, um, statues of of men that are in combat with each other in the Greco-Roman time, they're all shaved. So I think this is interesting. Um, it's more typical of a Jewish rabbi to have a beard than it would be for a, Ro a Roman to have a beard. So I think this is very interesting, and I think this depiction may have kind of um, created the thrust of, like, uh, for centuries, of seeing Christ as bearded. Now, this one is my favorite. Um, they have depictions of this, but this is a three-dimensional, it's a lamp, and, say it again. <laughs> yeah, he is, it is. So this is the head of Jonah, and this is the great fish. You put the oil here. Wait. No, I'm sorry. You put the oil right there, and then you light it there. And so it was their lamps so they could go through the catacombs <coughs> with some, some measure of light. <laughs> okay. And um, so Jonah is coming out of the mouth, and this goes to one of Jesus' teachings. I, you know, you can, um, I will be the sign of Jonah. You can destroy my body, and three days later, I will come out. And so, th uh, this, this would probably be uh, anywhere from second to fourth century. But it was based on the idea, I mean, the, the Christians who were being persecuted were very fixated on death and resurrection. Resurrection of the body, and this was another symbol that encouraged them to think, okay, this isn't it. If we get eaten by lions, so be it. Because this is not it. We will be resurrected. So, that's one of my favorites. Okay, this is an epitaph in the San Sebastiano catacomb that uh, Randy and Christopher and I got to go to in 1993. This is, um, the arch is a symbol of martyrdom. So when you go in through the catacombs, you'll see little tray, like um, trays where the bodies would have been stacked on top of each other. And if you come across one that has any kind of an art to it, it means that that Christian died in martyrdom. And the sign of the fish in Christianity and the sign of the anchor from Clement are very pronounced on this one. I think you might remember that last week I said that um, during the persecution, if you suspected that you were talking to a brother or sister in Christ, you could do one arc, and if it really was, if they were, they would connect the arc and give the tail so that the sign of the fish was 
an insider's way of saying we're safe. <laughs> we can talk. Um, so uh, the, the sign of the fish is here. The sign of the anchor is associated with Clement. He was one of the first uh, uh, elder bishops of the church in Rome and in the first century. And because of his beliefs, he Rome murdered him by strapping him to an anchor and drowning him. And so the sign of the anchor is um, goes back to his martyrdom. And as you can see, it kind of has a little bit of a, a cross effect for it, but be, also being an anchor for the soul. Now, why the sign of the fish? Well, it's an acronym, actually. Um, the ichthus in Greek is an acronym. The uh, iota is the first letter of Jesus in Greek. The chi is the first letter of Christos in Greek for anointed. The theta is the first letter of theo, which is Greek for God. And the upsilon is the first letter of uh, the Greek word for son, and the sigma is the first letter for Savior. So basically, you're saying a confession of faith that Jesus is uh, the anointed of God, that he is God, that he was the son and is my Savior. So the ichthus is a confession of faith just with a symbol. Very beautiful. Now, uh, persecution gets bad under Nero, um, and then there's a time of, of uh, a lull for a time, and then just before Constantine takes the throne, uh, there's a, a very deep and very troubling uh, persecution for the church again, yet again. And this begins to stop when Constantine and his troops are coming to the, um, the Mil um, I can't talk, Milvian Bridge in Rome, just outside of Rome, in 312. He is going to battle with his brother-in-law, Maxentius. They're co-regents, co-emperors. Co and he comes against his, his brother-in-law, um, he wants the whole thing for himself, and he defeats, defeats Maxentius at the bridge. And before he does so, he describes having a vision of the Cairo <clears throat> in, the, in the skies above him, and that the Lord was saying, do this in, the, in my name. I will give you victory in my name. And so all of his, um, sh all of the shields for the Roman um, soldiers that he has have this affixed to their shields and they go out and they win the battle. And so um, shortly after that he seizes all of Maxentius's properties. This building is what we have remaining of the most, the last one that Maxentius built. It's uh, a basilica that he built and in Roman society, a basilica was a place to do business, to hold court, to solve problems between men. So they could go and there 
absolutely huge. So you can see little groups here and there, or maybe even big groups, conducting business and, um, and relating to one another, holding forth court and so forth. So um, I'm going to show you. This is the cutaway view of what it would have been like, but I think, honestly, this three-dimensional reproduction uh, from the UCLA is, is more explicit. Uh, you can see how beautifully decorated it is with marbles, and you can see the coffered ceilings, you can see the Corinthian all, um, columns, you can see this was an, an act of Roman engineering, the vault, they're, they were responsible for that. You can see the niches for all of the Greco-Roman gods. Um, so this would have been a basilica in Roman terms. Now, for some reason, Constantine says, hey, you can have this church. And so they took out the Roman gods in the niches, and they began to worship, not in homes, but in the basilicas. And this was the first, <clears throat> um, first opportunity that the church <clears throat> had received in impressive settings and ceremonies to reflect its new status as being legal. Um, <clears throat> he commissions the building of St. Peter's, which is uh, our little logo outside the, the door. Um, he commissions it and uh, uses the architectural layout of the Roman Basilica for the floor plan to cr create a processional path. Now, this is really important to me. Up to, you know, we always think of the middle aisle. We can thank Constantine for the middle aisle <laughs> because he wanted to have this grand procession. He wanted everyone to know he was coming to worship, and so it's all about him. So. Um, and he carries this over to Constantine. This is the early Christian floor plan <clears throat> that, that um, I'll send you this since we're out of time. And this is the old basilica, a section view of it. Um, the apse at the end was <coughs> one of the most beautiful things about these early Roman churches because the apses are decorated and little teeny tiny pieces of marble and gold um, called tessera. And they depict uh, images of the apostles. And they, they feature, as you can see, the Lamb of God. But then what we're going to see as we move forward, I'm gonna, um, like this particular one, uh, you can see still they're thinking Jesus as the lamb and, and the church as sheep uh, and the cross is prominent but what we're going to see it uh, in the future is Jesus as king and so that's a little um, mm, yes a little foreshadowing of what where Emily is going to go next week um, I'm going to send you a link to a very interesting video. Um, and so when you get that link, take a look at it so that you can kind of submit. I've, I've kind of isolated some of these ideas. This is the video it gives you sort of like a beautiful 
fluid uh, view of this period of time. Do you guys have any questions for me? I think I spent so much time doing a uh, re review <laughs> that I didn't leave you any time for questions. So if you have some, just email me and I'll, I'll try to get back to you. Um, I just saw yours. I'm sorry. <laughs> um, Jerry wanted to know what my background for this was. And so just briefly, I'm an interior designer. Um, my specialty is healthcare design. And I have my master's degree and worked as a campus minister at Pepperdine. And so I'm blending um, my experience as a, as a designer with my understanding of theology. And so I'm kind of, uh, I don't know. And your dissertation was? <laughs> my dissertation was on creating sustainable buildings for uh, that in, in rural Rwanda that could support um, IT development. So I had to go pretty far afield to find that kind of stuff. Yeah. That, that's so important in healthcare design. You know, I'm working with a group. For sustainability? They, yes, you did. Yeah, they put a, a group of uh, three college students all over the country who are designing a neonatal ICU for Jamaica. I love that. That um, that touches my heart. Neonatal was one of my favorite areas of healthcare when I was designing. You know, Odessa Settles, you know, works has worked for years as a neonatal ICU nurse. I had no idea. Yeah. My heart goes out for her. Yeah. Neonatal nurses and healthcare providers are some of the, that's one of the most stressful jobs I've ever seen. So when I got to design for neonatal, I really tried to support them. Yeah, good. Okay, thank you.